Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Growing Greater. This episode, it's brought to us in part by CGI, one of the largest and most successful IT and business consulting services firms in the world. The professionals of CGI, they provide their clients with actionable counsel that's intended to first and foremost drive business transformations to effectively engage in an evolving customer-centric ecosystem that delivers on client expectations and that also ensures that business strategies and technology platforms are aligned to unlock value. CGI works across the value chain of life sciences, supporting clinical and regulatory, manufacturing, quality, and commercial operations, and so much more, all specifically focused on the growth of regional companies that are leading the way in the life sciences and the biopharma space. You can learn more about all that CGI can provide your team by visiting CGI.com. And join me in thanking CGI for believing in us at Select Greater Philadelphia and for their support of our Growing Greater podcast. This is Growing Greater, Growing Greater. bringing you the stories of economic growth, job creation, and business success from across the 11-county community of Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania. Now, here's Matt Gabry. My name is Laura Deardoff, and I was diagnosed with dermatomyositis in 2001. I was very active. Um, I had two kids. I was a I was a teacher, and when you think about what you could do, it's almost like um, you have to go through a funeral process. That that part's gone. Dermatomyositis, it's a rare and serious systemic autoimmune condition characterized by skin and muscle involvement that often proves to be very painful. And as with many rare diseases, it can be difficult to find information, support, and treatment. For Laura and others who are navigating rare diseases like dermatomyositis, it can be a challenging mystery to uncover a diagnosis, let alone potential treatment options. Enter Corbis Pharmaceuticals. As a phase three clinical stage pharmaceutical company, the people of Corbis Pharmaceuticals are committed to developing and commercializing therapeutics that improve the health of people affected by chronic, inflammatory, and fibrotic diseases such as dermatomyositis. Key to success for organizations that are made up of smart, visionary, and passionate professionals, it's collaboration. And for Corbis Pharmaceuticals, it's their partnership with the University of Pennsylvania on their clinical trial studies to develop a potential treatment for patients diagnosed with dermatomyositis. Their phase two trial, it was funded by a grant from the National Institutes of Health to the University of Pennsylvania. And we'll learn just how important the investment of funds and expertise from the NIH is for projects like this. Corbis co-founder and CEO, Yuval Cohen, he joins us to share insights about the company's mission and dedication to research in rare diseases. We are also joined by lead investigator, Dr. Victoria Wirth, professor of dermatology and medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and chief of dermatology at the Philadelphia Veterans Administration Medical Center. Dr. Wirth provides perspective on the clinical studies and the collaboration between Corbis and Penn. But we kick off with Dr. Cohen, who talks with us about the risk associated with investing time and resources to develop potential treatments for rare diseases. 
First of all, I agree wholeheartedly. It is probably of all the sectors of business or industry, probably one of the riskiest. And the reason I say this, just to reinforce what you have said, is the amount of money that you need to invest in drug development is very, very high. I'll give you an example. Corbis has just turned six. We turned six on April 11th. In the last six years since our inception, we have raised from investors over $200 million. And if we add to that the awards and grants we've received from patient advocacy groups and from the National Institutes of Health, as well as industrial collaborations, pharmaceutical partners, the figure gets closer to a quarter of a billion dollars. That is primarily for our first drug. And so it's an enormous amount of capital that needs to go into this industry. And oftentimes, in fact, statistically, it doesn't work. Most drugs actually, especially early on in the process, fail. The good news is the more mature they are, the later they are in the development process, the more likely they are to succeed. But it's very capital-intensive and certainly at the beginning, very, very risky. But again, the rewards are also very high. In terms of what drew me to it and what I think really is at the core of why we at Corbis, and there's just under 150 of us, are so excited and so passionate about it, has to do with two fundamental principles. The first one is our focus and commitment on the patients that we aim to serve. The rare diseases we focus on that are very serious diseases. These are diseases where patients' lives are transformed. They are often disabled as a result of these diseases. They often find it very difficult to be employed as a result of these diseases or study at school as a result of these diseases. And most tragically, the four diseases we focus on for our lead drug are all life-threatening diseases. And so the first principle we have is commitment to the patient. The second principle we have is one of the hallmark of our industry is it's all about science. And so we have a deep passion for the science at Corvus. And our science is, we think, particularly interesting because it has to do with an entire biological system in the human body, known as the endocannabinoid system. And what we've built at Corvus is a large group of people, again, about 150 of us, that focuses on almost all aspects to do with this science from the very basic elements of discovering how cells use this system and discovering novel compounds that can be harnessed to influence the endocannabinoid system, all the way to how do you conduct a clinical study? How do you interact with health authorities? How do you ultimately market a drug like that? So patients and science are really at the foundation of both my personal beliefs and I think our corporate culture. Well, congratulations on the six-year anniversary of the founding of Corbis. And equally, congratulations on 
encouraging investors to see your vision and raising over $200 million in support and funding. And I suspect some of that, Dr. Cohen, is related to your partnerships, not only with others in the pharmaceutical industry and your expertise, but also with world-class researchers, those like the team at Penn and Dr. Worth and her team who are part of your operation in terms of supporting the clinical trial for one of your lead therapies. And I was hoping you could talk with us a little bit about that whole process of how does a pharmaceutical company ultimately choose to engage a clinical trial research partner to advance their idea from concept to proof of concept, if you will? You are absolutely correct. Everything we do is collaborative, both internally within groups within Corbis, but equally importantly is we constantly collaborate with outside partners. It would be impossible for us to do what we do, both as a company and as an industry, without collaborating. Science is collaborative by definition. And so for us, for example, it was very, very important that we collaborate with the best minds in the world when it comes to either our biology or the best clinician and especially research clinicians when it comes to our indications, to the diseases we focus on. And in the case of one of our indications, dermatomyositis, a, a rare, devastating, life-threatening autoimmune condition that only affects several tens of thousands of Americans and unfortunately, again, has a very, very devastating effect on their lifestyle and shortens their lifespan. One of the top researchers and clinicians in the world is Dr. Vicky Worth at UPenn. And it's interesting how Corvus and Dr. Worth actually started working together. It predates Corvus. It has to do with one of our scientific founders, Dr. Robert Nouillet, who is a rheumatologist who was also back in the day at UPenn, who really made that first connection between the mechanism of action of our lead drug, lenabacin, and its potential application in a specific autoimmune disease of dermatomyositis. And that's really where it started. And then our chief medical officer, Dr. Barbara White, who of her own right is a specialist in these autoimmune diseases, had known of Dr. Worth before, knew her very well. And when she joined our company, it really was the perfect, perfect combination of external world-class specialist in this disease, own internal world-class chief medical officer, and a scientific founder as well that were all perfectly aligned to work together. As we referenced earlier in our conversation, oftentimes the best opportunities come about through serendipity. And it sounds like the connection that Dr. Worth had made with some of her colleagues and peers, even prior to the founding of Corbis, was a serendipitous moment that has come to fruition with a real plan of action and with support from the National Institutes of Health, which is providing a grant in order to conduct the research that's happening in support of this drug candidate. And I was hoping you could talk with us a little bit, a bit Dr. Cohen, about how significant that NIH funding is to not only fuel the potential of a clinical trial like the Corbis trial in partnership with 
with Penn, but what it means to patients and their families and the hope that they have for some sort of therapeutic solution that could ultimately allow them to live a better life. It's so important. The National Institutes of Health really is a unique organization. It is by far, by an order of magnitude, the largest funder of scientific research that has to do with matters of biology and clinical on planet Earth. It really is involved in so, so many things. Much of what it does has to do on the preclinical level, basic science, etc., And many of our collaborators started their work on different projects, obviously with NIH funding. But I think one of the underappreciated aspects of the NIH is that it also has mechanisms to fund early stage clinical development. And the reason that is so important is the following. If you remember, Matt, as I mentioned, clinical development or drug development is at its riskiest in the early stages. Later on, the risk actually diminishes very, very significantly. So imagine us as a very young company several years ago with a drug that was very early in its development, hence very risky, and wanting to collaborate with a top academic here in the United States and worldwide, which is Dr. Worf at UPenn. The bridge that made that possible was that NIH support because that enabled us together to take a risk on this project at a time where it was at its riskiest. And it paid off in the sense that the results were positive. Since then, that project has now moved to a much larger phase three study. That one we are funding as Corvus. But that initial first inpatient small very risky study, it was very hard to imagine it not happening other than with the support of the NIH. The support of the NIH was absolutely immensely, immensely helpful. So we're very grateful. And the last thing I'll point out is, of course, the NIH is not just an organization that provides funding. There is an enormous amount of expertise and knowledge within the NIH. And so the ability, again, to tap into not only their resources, but also their expertise is immensely helpful. So when we come back, we're going to be joined by the lead investigator on these studies who shares with us how this whole clinical trial process began. But first, let's thank the team at the University of Pennsylvania. Academic life at Penn is unparalleled. Students from every state in the U.S. and nearly 100 countries around the world make up the Penn community. Consistently ranked among the top 10 universities in the country, Penn's award-winning educators, researchers, and scholars encourage students to pursue inquiry and discovery, to follow their passions, and to address the world's most challenging problems through an interdisciplinary approach. With a research budget of nearly $1 billion and more than 4,000 active faculty members, Penn's scale and R&D expertise sets them apart. Learn more about all that Penn has to offer by visiting upenn.edu and join me in thanking the University of Pennsylvania for their support of our Growing Greater podcast. 
Now let's get back to our story of how collaboration is helping to advance a possible treatment for a rare skin disease known as dermatomyositis. Dr. Victoria Wirth, she serves as the lead investigator for these clinical studies. The story here is that I was approached by actually the person who had been working for 25 years on a non-psychoactive cannabinoid and was interested in seeing it used in autoimmune skin disease. And there was interest in several different diseases. I became really interested in dermatomyositis because there really haven't been any particularly advances in therapy and the therapies we have are not ideal. And so I decided, given the mechanism of action of the drug, especially some of the studies that we had been able to do in our lab and had been done prior to that time, to think that dermatomyositis might be a reasonable disease to study. And so I wrote an NIH grant, and it was funded to do a placebo-controlled randomized trial that would examine, in a relatively small number of patients, but a large number of dermatomyositis patients, the effect of the drug over the course of the study. We were also able to get biopsies and skin samples as well as blood samples to be able to look at some of the biomarkers and effects of the drug in people who got placebo versus actual drug. And so it's been a really rich study to begin to think about what are the drivers in dermatomyositis and and is this therapy actually going to work? Corbis is obviously the company developing the drug. I've worked very closely with them for many years. They've been wonderful to work with, highly ethical, and also very patient-centric in terms of the designs of the studies and their priorities. And it's been a pleasure to work with them over the years. Take us back to that moment of identifying and wanting to apply for an NIH grant. Was the inspiration patients that you were seeing in your practice? Was it the conversations you were having with your peers and with leaders at Corbis around how do we develop a treatment for these folks? Or was it something else that said, hey, you know what? This is an area that's so important. We want to, at the very least, apply for a grant to advance some of our research. How did that all come about? So one of the people who developed the drug actually before, you know, and then Corbis became really the important developer of the drug. But the medical scientist who was working on that ahead of time actually approached me. And so we had a number of scientific discussions. And that's actually what precipitated me to write the grant and then to also work in collaboration with Corpus. And so that was a very interesting process. I just knew that there was clinical need because I was seeing so many patients with dermatomyositis. They were somehow all coming, you know, very frequently to my practice. And I realized how ineffective many of our therapies were and how much these patients suffered. And so it was really nice to see a congruence of how the drug might be working and that it was very well tolerated with the fact that there was this therapeutic need. And that's really what precipitated me to get involved with the study. So we often hear this terminology, rare disease. And by the way, I'm glad to hear that some of the inspiration for this work comes from conversation that you're having with your peers. And that's what was uh, a catalyst for you to say, you know, let's apply for this grant and see if we can move the needle in this space. And coming back to the rare disease aspect of this, share with us, how do you define a rare disease? So it's actually more or less, I would say, from a regulatory standpoint, it's a certain number of patients within a country. And so in our country, if you have, I think, less than 200,000 people having that disease, then it's considered rare. 
Right. Gotcha. And when we think about patients in this specific area, how many folks are we talking about approximately? So that's the really interesting thing about this is that we don't actually know. I have seen probably upwards of 400 patients with dermatomyositis over the last uh, decade or possibly a little longer. We have a prospective database that has allowed us to actually get a very good idea of how many patients are coming in, at least to my practice. And I would say that if you look at population-based studies, then the incidence is relatively low. But one of the issues is that the criteria for dermatomyositis would only in the past have allowed one to identify patients who had potentially the skin problems, but also had to have the muscle problems. And it turns out, at least in my practice, that over half of the patients have skin-predominant disease and often don't have muscle disease. So that group is pretty much unaccounted for. And when we've done studies and the people referred to my practice, only about 44% of them have been called dermatomyositis before they walk in the door. And they've been called other things, such as lupus, such as undifferentiated connective tissue disease or unknown. And so what that is telling me is that the patients really do struggle to get a diagnosis. And part of that is because the criteria in the past didn't work. And the other part of it is just that it's a relatively rare disease. But it's, I think it's becoming probably a little bit less rare, you know, and there's maybe a heightened awareness as we try to improve on our ability to diagnose these patients. So I think we're identifying more. The other thing I would say is I worked very closely with the woman at the Karolinska Institute who was working on developing new dermatomyositis criteria. And we had a, a whole steering committee made up of about probably 10 people, which over the course of about a decade came up with and then validated new criteria that would improve the ability to diagnose patients. And now we can actually diagnose patients who have skin predominant disease with these new criteria, which is something we couldn't do prior to this. That makes sense. When symptoms manifest themselves in certain ways, they get identified and they get uh, a pattern, if you will, that are recognized by clinicians such as yourselves and other peers. And then it becomes, you know, kind of the protocol, if you will, of identifying and categorizing these kinds of conditions so that they can be focused on and treated in a more specific way, which makes a lot of sense because these symptoms have to be, I guess, recognized, if you will. And if they're not, then they're never going to necessarily advance to a certain stage where R&D types of therapeutic solutions are invested in. Yeah, and I think with a multi-system disease like dermatomyositis, which can involve you know, skin, muscles, lung, and different combinations in different patients, what ends up happening is that if a certain specialty is the one that's mainly seeing that patient, they may not be seeing the patients who also have that disease, but they may not be aware that there are a lot of those kind of patients that are out there. Right, right. So you had mentioned earlier on in our conversation that this study with Corbis is funded in part by the National Institutes of Health, and it's in a grant that you actually kind of put into motion, if you will. What's the significance of that NIH funding in general and for this type of project? So I think it's extremely important because within the rheumatologic area, there have not necessarily been all that many studies. I mean, there have certainly been studies funded by NIH, but in the area of especially skin and dermatomyositis, there have been really none. And so this is really exciting to be able to have recognition of that part of the field and the funding to allow doing a phase two trial that, you know, would so early that it would be very difficult, I think, to get full funding, you know, set up from the company side, although it certainly can be done. But it just gives real scientific validity to the questions that we were asking and allowed us to do things that were really important for the study. Gotcha. So I'm going to make an attempt at this terminology, Dr. Worth, dermatomyositis. How'd I do? <laughs> 
It's not too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Dermato is Um, skin and myositis is muscle, so it's dermatomyositis. Yep, dermatomyositis, yeah. There are many patients who have a really hard time with that term. It's a really hard one to pronounce. I can imagine. And where I'm going with this is help us understand the type of challenges that a patient diagnosed with this condition and their family, how are they coping? What kind of challenges do they encounter day to day? A lot. The impact of the skin part of dermato and the muscle part and the lung part can be quite dramatic, can be quite disabling. From a skin perspective, patients know the sun can be a trigger, so it really modifies their ability to do outdoor kinds of things in ways that they really don't like. If there are really obvious areas, it's very hard for them sometimes to be at work because people are looking at their skin and worried about contagion or worried about what's going on. So it can be really socially isolating. Not in an era of a COVID epidemic, maybe it's not so bad, but normally it's very destructive for patients to not be able to do things. And then from a symptomatic standpoint, patients are very itchy often and really keeps them from sleeping appropriately. And it's really a big problem. From a family perspective, you know, just trying to support somebody who's trying to navigate through this disease and many of the complexities of getting the testing done on, you know, initially and then on an intermittent basis is difficult. And then the fact that the therapies are fairly difficult and not always effective. And that's really hard for patients and their families. So I know you've had positive results in a phase two study. What's the status now? Are we in a phase three? And how large of a study are we talking about? So the phase two study involved 22 patients, 11 in each arm. And then the 11 patients who got placebo were able to be crossed over into the active arm. And they all got drugged. And what's been really amazing about working with Corvus is their commitment to the patients and their commitment to long-term safety of the drug. And so some of these patients are now going on three years or longer on a long-term extension. And given that the drug has helped quite a number of these patients, they're very grateful to be able to continue this drug and also to be able to collect any information about potential side effects that could be seen. I can imagine for a patient and his or her family, it has to be a game changer for them to know that this is on the horizon. And in that spirit, Dr. Worth, share with us, what do you want physicians who work in this space to know about this clinical trial, you know, the potential promise of a treatment that could be pretty significant for their patients? Right. So I think what's important to know is that there is a phase three trial that's now ongoing. And the goal is now to really look at many more patients because that's what you do in a phase three trial. It's somewhere on the order of 150 patients, which is a lot of dermatomyositis patients. It's a global trial, and that's certainly also important to note. And I think that it's also including patients at this point who either have you know bad muscle or bad skin. And so it's really expanding the information that we'll be getting about the different organ systems that are involved. And I would say that since we're still fairly, you know, in the middle of the recruitment, this is a real opportunity for patients who've had problems with refractory disease to be included in a clinical trial that may be helpful. And at the end of the trial, they would be getting drug, whether they got placebo or drug at the beginning. Gotcha. That's a great option for folks to know because it is all about treatment in the end. I can imagine folks who are in a placebo portion of the program are anxious to be able to see if this medicine would work for them once the trial is completed. And in that spirit, Dr. Worth, what kind of counsel do you share with patients and their families as they manage this condition, knowing that this clinical trial is moving forward? 
So when I see patients, I mean, everybody's in a different place with their disease. And if somebody's got mild disease, they're not going to be a good candidate for a trial because we won't be able to see that much improvement. And people need to be on some kind of active treatment and be failing it because if they're getting placebo, you don't want the patient to be untreated for the length of the trial. And so we have a lot of discussions about who is the right patient to be in a trial. And they have to have enough disease, but also be in a place where they can live with their disease in case you know they're not getting better for a period of time. And also, there are many other elements of deciding if this is the right thing for a person. You know, are they going to have a hard time coming in to be seen for a trial? Are they comfortable, you know, being in that kind of setting? We've seen huge commitment from the patients who were in the phase two trial. They've been amazing patients. They've really gone through for long periods of time and are highly committed. And so we look for people who we think are going to be able to have that commitment to helping bring this drug to market. Folks, that's Dr. Victoria Wirth. She's professor of dermatology and medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And she's also the chief of dermatology at the Philadelphia Veterans Administration Medical Center. As an internist and a dermatologist, Dr. Wirth has a practice devoted to autoimmune skin diseases. And Dr. Wirth, I'm really appreciative that you took time out to join us to share with us a little bit of insight about your work at Penn and also your collaboration with the team at Corbis on this this promising clinical study uh, specific to autoimmune diseases. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Shifting gears slightly, I was hoping, Dr. Cohen, that we could talk about what's next. You've referenced the importance of data and risk management, especially in those early clinical trial, even preclinical trial, seed planning, proof of concept moments. And fortunately, the work that you and your team have done with Dr. Worth and the team at Penn have shown some positive results. And it's appearing as though this could be a safe and effective treatment for patients The investment of time and resources, as you referenced, continues, and there could be some positive outcomes here for, most importantly, patients and their families who are looking for treatment options to allow them to live a better life. Share with us some of the upcoming milestones in this specific clinical trial. I think you're in a phase three right now with this rare autoimmune disease project. So for the dermatomyositis program, with our lead drug, Lenabacin, it is currently in a phase three study, as you've mentioned, to juxtapose and just in terms of both the investment, the monetary investment, but also think in terms of the human resource investment. Our initial study, the NIH-backed study, was a study on just 22 patients and carried out in Dr. Worth's clinic at UPenn. The study that has followed, which we are in the midst of, is a multinational study in the U.S., Canada, the European Union, Japan, South Korea. It is 150 patients. Unlike the first study in which patients were really given the drug for about 12 weeks, this one is a 12-month study. And so everything about this one is so much larger, so much more expensive, of course, so much more complex that it could not have happened without that initial first inpatient study. This phase three study that we're currently undergoing will finish enrollment later this year. And a year later, i.e. 2021, we will have the data for it. Should the data be positive? Should we see the types of improvement that we saw in our preliminary small short study? 
then our intention would be to engage in discussions here in the U.S. with the FDA and with their international counterparts and seek the approval of the drug in all of those countries for the treatment of dermatomyositis. And these patients are really in quite desperate need of novel therapies that will hopefully change their quality of life and, again, their duration of life. It's an exciting time for sure, Dr. Cohen, to have potential for regulatory approval based on the clinical trial studies and the outcomes of those studies that patients in multiple parts of the world could potentially have access to a treatment that will allow them and their families to live better lives. You have to be really proud of the work that you and your 150 plus or minus colleagues at Corbis are doing. What do you want folks to know about Corbis? I want folks to think about Corbis as a small company, very focused company, but where we aim to really punch above our weight. And what I mean by that is we are a focus team that is so dedicated to becoming the world expert on the specific biology that we target. And so my hope is five years from now, if we go back and do a follow-up podcast, you and I, what I will be able to tell you is about multiple drugs from Corvus that are available, not just our first one, but also its follow-on drugs about multiple indications that are now treatable with our drugs, not just about what we hope will be the first one, which is, again, a rare autoimmune disease. And last but not least, about a small focused company that through its dedication of its staff, and I think focus has become really one of the pioneers and leaders in designing, developing, marketing, partnering, therapeutics based on the endocannabinoid system in the body. That's certainly my hope, and I hope that two years from now we get to have this call again and that all of that comes true. Absolutely. I'm going to take you up on that opportunity. And what I'd love to do is do it in person because we are now having this conversation through the very rare and unique pandemic containment situation where we're speaking remotely as opposed to having you in the studio with us. So I do look forward to following the success of Corbis Pharmaceuticals and would love to take you up on that opportunity to learn more about the milestones that you and your team are going to achieve in the coming months and years. My wrap-up question for you, Dr. Cohen, is a young person comes to you, they admire your career path, they see that you have a focus on science, but you also have a passion for helping people, you have an entrepreneurial type of uh, blend that you've sprinkled into to the mixture of Yuval Cohen's career. What kind of advice do you share with a young person like that who asks you for some insights on how to best navigate their journey? I think my advice would be the following, and especially, and I like the way you frame it, people who are just beginning their careers or are thinking about their careers, and those people tend to not have a family yet or not have children and just have a tremendous amount of flexibility ahead of them, even when it comes to what country they can work in or what city they can work in or what profession to practice or what discipline to study. So my advice to, to someone like that is be curious. Don't be afraid of 
exploring different types of avenues of profession, industry, discipline. Now is the time for you to do so and talk to as many people as possible. Talk to people who are engaging in the type of professions or, again, studies that you're interested in and make informed decisions because life is a series, as you've mentioned, of a lot of serendipitous events happening. But without that curiosity, without that sort of intellectual flexibility and spontaneity, those serendipitous events mean nothing because you won't act upon them. You may not even recognize when they happen. So keep an open mind, stay curious, and don't be afraid of change. That would be my advice to to that younger person. Folks, that's Yuval Cohen. He's the co-founder and chief executive officer at Corbis Pharmaceuticals. It's great advice, Dr. Cohen. Thank you for taking time out to share with us the journey you've been on with your team at Corbis. We will be watching your success and look forward to re-engaging you and your team in the future. Thanks so much for joining us right here on Growing Greater. Thank you so much for having me. With the phase three clinical studies underway, the data will drive the next steps, showing just how safe and effective this possible treatment may be for patients managing their diagnosis of dermatomyositis, offering hope for better symptom control and a healthier life with this rare disease. As we wrap this episode, let's again thank the team at CGI. They are not only helping us bring these stories of innovation to life, they are also helping us attract new companies and new jobs to our community. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review our podcast and share it with friends and colleagues and family and through social media. Tune in to other episodes of Growing Greater wherever you listen to your podcasts or at selectgreaterphl.com slash podcast. Growing Greater is presented by Select Greater Philadelphia, a council of our Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia. Select is the business attraction organization for Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania, and helps to grow the economic vibrancy of our collective community by attracting new businesses and new jobs to our region. Special thanks to our program producers, Elena Carmazin and Maricela Juarez, along with the great team of marketing and creative services professionals at our chamber. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in anytime and anywhere you get your podcasts or online at selectgreaterphl.com slash podcast.